For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirksen. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And uh, last week I finished a series on uh, Is the Bible Really God's Word? And today I want to start just a little two-part mini-series. It'll just be this weekend and next weekend, and then Pastor Ray is on for Father's Day. But I want to do uh, two weeks on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. It's one of the most uh, famous stories in the Bible. I'm hoping to do kind of a little bit like last year, this summer. Last year I spent the summer doing uh, Moses. And this year I'd like to kind of spend a lot of the summertime uh, doing some other Bible characters. I think it's just so powerful. So I'm hoping later in summer maybe to do Joseph or someone like that. But for the next two weeks we're going to do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And and the thing I want to look at in particular uh, through the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is I want to talk about what does real faith look like. And so that's kind of the topic, but we'll be doing it through the story of of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So bow your heads and me, close your eyes, and, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 3. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have recorded these stories for us for our instruction. Uh, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that these stories closely parallel the same things that we deal with in our lives. And I thank you, Jesus, that you want to give us a message to strengthen our faith, and I pray that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit here this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So let's just start Daniel 3, verse 1. And we'll just start to work our way through it. We'll get most of the way through the chapter today, and we, but we won't finish it uh, certainly until next week. Uh, famous story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. That's about 90 feet. It's a very big statue. And its breadth, 6 cubits. That's 9 feet. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, so I I just want to stop there for just a moment. Um, Again, famous story. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up the big statue. I mean, any of you who's been a Christian for any amount of time, if you grew up a Christian, you've heard this story, no doubt, dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, all right? So, uh, but the thing I want to I talk about here for just a moment is, again, this is a, not just a famous story, this is a well-liked story. It's, it's kind of a cool story. It's sort of an exciting story, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, we like it. It's got some adventure in it. We like to tell our kids, those of you with kids, this is certainly a story we, we all tell our kids. And so, and so, this is certainly a popular uh, story for most Christians, all right? Um, But the thing I want to address here for just a second is that even though we like this story for the most part, and for the most part, this is sort of a popular story, I think for many Christians, maybe not all, but I think for many of us, I know certainly for me many times in my life, when we read this story, yes, we enjoy it, yes, we kind of get into it because it's exciting, but at the same time that we sort of get into it and we enjoy it, we disengage from it a little bit. And what I mean by disengaged, not again, not that we're into it, it's like, oh, this is a cool story, and I like telling my kids, it's kind of exciting. Um, but we, we disengage from it subconsciously, not consciously, but subconsciously, I think that most of us, when we read this story, we disengage for it a bit, uh, a little bit, and the reason we disengage from it a bit is subconsciously, we don't think that this really applies to our lives. I mean, again, I don't think any of us would ever say that about anything in the Bible, But I think subconsciously we kind of put this gap, and the reason we put the gap there is right here at this point of the story, we go, okay, this is a really neat story about something that happened thousands of years ago, but nobody's putting up a 90-foot gold statue anywhere in Manitoba or Canada today, right? And so we kind of think, and so it's it's almost like, again, it's not a conscious thing, 
It's not a heart thing. It's just kind of a subconscious thing. Nobody does this anymore, okay? So it's a cool story, but we don't really push hard into it. What does this really mean for our lives? Let's move on. I mean, if we're going to meditate on something, we need to go to maybe the New Testament. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's not really relevant to us in Canada. I think that's kind of the subconscious feeling for many of us, even if we enjoy the story. And so I just want, I need to start off these two weeks by addressing that kind of feeling, that kind of subconscious belief, because it's actually based on a totally wrong view of human history and how human history works. See, it's based on this view, as, as Westerners living in modern times now, we kind of have this, this thought. Again, it's not something anybody ever teaches us. It's not something we ever say, but it's something we just kind of feel. We feel like life today for us is totally, absolutely, completely different than life was thousands of years ago in ancient times. I mean, the moment I say that, it just feels true. For most of us, that feels like a very true statement. Life in modern times is absolutely, totally, completely different than it was in ancient times. Now, certainly there is an element of truth to that statement. When it com- I mean, certainly in, the, in terms of technology and knowledge, Things are way different now how we live than, than they did back thousands of years ago. So yeah, we drive cars now. We have computers. Uh, some of you have cell phones. Most of you, just not me. Uh, uh, you know, airplanes, all this sort of thing. Uh, y- y- so in terms of, of technology and, you know, kind of the amenities of our life, yes, it's true. Everything today is totally different than back then, Okay. But that is only one way of viewing human life. In terms of absolutely everything else, if you get past the technology and the knowledge, if you get down to just, we're all human beings, the material of history is the same as it was today. They, they were human beings back then, they're human beings now. They had feelings, they had hopes and dreams, they had anxieties, they had fears, they had lusts. The same sins, the same material, the same pride that was at work back then has not changed in the last few thousand years to now. Has not changed at all. And so yes, when we think about technology, when we want to think about knowledge and science, life is different now than it used to be. But when you want to talk, just talk about the human experience, human behavior, how we feel from day to day, and the things we struggle with and gossip about and hurt about and get excited about, human history hasn't changed at all. It's the same thing today. It's the same sins tempting people. It's the same pride at work. It's the same powerful forces of darkness at work. It's the same everything, which is why the book of Ecclesiastes, and this has to radically change the way we read the Bible, but let me just read you Ecclesiastes first here, a couple passages. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. In other words, what has happened in the past is what's going to continue to happen in the future. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Yes, there are new, you know, new technology, new, you know, learning, science, all that sort of stuff, but what Solomon is talking about here is that there's nothing new in the sun in the sense that history just repeats itself over and over and over and over again in terms of humans being proud, humans, you know, trying to fulfill the lust of the flesh, humans gossiping, slandering, even the hopes, even the good sides of things. People living a few thousand years ago in Babylon, you know, they had a lot of the same hopes and dreams we do in our society. They had hopes and dreams for a better life for their children. They had hopes and dreams to get a little wealthier and have life be a little easier and all these sorts of things. Human life, 
the experience of humanity, it's the same today as it was back then, just dressed up in different clothes. Ecclesiastes 3.15, Solomon repeated himself on this issue and said it this way, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And again, this is hugely, I, I touched on this briefly last summer when we went through the Moses story, but this is hugely important for the mentality of how we approach the Bible. Because generally what we do is we approach the Bible with this subconscious gap that these lives, Moses and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Joseph, and all of these, these people, they lived in a totally different, you know, separate universe almost. It was totally different from now. And so we read the stories and we think they're cool, but we don't plumb them. We don't read Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and for the most part, when we read it, we enjoy it, but we don't feel conviction that I actually maybe should be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't think we should be like them because we think they lived in a totally different time. What's needed now is different than it was back then, and that is completely wrong. We should read these stories. We should read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and be convicted to the core of our hearts that the same thing that God demanded of them then and that was needed then is the same thing that is needed now. And this is why Paul, in Romans chapter 15, he wrote about the Old Testament stories, and this is what he said. Okay? I want you to notice this. For whatever was written in former days, he's speaking of the Old Testament stories, for whatever was written in former days, those Old Testament stories, was written for our instruction. The Old Testament stories, and, and, and that includes the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we're looking at this week and next week, this story was not written as a cool fairy tale. It wasn't written as just a cool story that you got to know. It was written for our instruction. That means it all applies to us today. Life back then was a close enough parallel to now that the principles we see at work here are the principles that need to be at work in us here today. And the kind of faith that they needed back then is the kind of faith that we continue to need today. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. I mean, I, I just think, as I was getting ready for this message again this weekend, I was thinking about, you know, the Old Testament stories, and I was reading my Bible, and, and I was just falling in, a, in love again with God's Word. Uh, Paul says here something very interesting, and I'm going to, you know, carry on with what we're doing here in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I just, I want to just highlight here that he talks about the encouragement of the Scriptures. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we're going to have hope. You want to know how to endure? You want to know one of the key, most practical pieces of advice I can give you for enduring, and Paul talks about it right here, is you, you read, you feed on the stories of Moses and Abraham and Joseph and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel and Adam and Eve, and you feed on these stories by the power of the Holy Spirit. You feed on these stories because then when you are going through tough times, in these stories, the Holy Spirit brings things alive about what a godly person does here and what a righteous person does here and what courage looks like here. And you see these people like King David and sometimes they made mistakes and sometimes they stood strong and you get encouragement that gives you hope and endurance in the tough things of your own life. So back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many Christians, right at the beginning, we, so we start, we, you know, we start right at the beginning of the passage, we start reading about Nebuchadnezzar uh, you know, setting up a 90-foot-tall golden statue, and we, and we right away begin to subconsciously disengage. Not that we don't like the story, but we just kind of start to disengage because we just think, how is this relevant to my life? Nobody's 
setting up a golden statue today to bow down to. Nobody's got a fiery furnace to throw me into. And so we enjoy the story, but we disengage from it in the sense of this doesn't apply to us. But as I've just showed you in Scripture, every one of these stories is written for our instruction. And everything that is right now is stuff that has been. And so we can see that actually the whole story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is very applicable to us. So then we have to ask the question, well, what's our golden statue? Okay, what, if this is written for our instruction and nothing is new under the sun and if it happened back then, it's happening now, what's our golden statue? Well, I think there's actually, there's, there's many. That would be a whole other topic to talk about the golden statues we have in our society. But I want to give you a definition. I want to give you the most biblical definition. There's other definitions you can use. There's different types of idols, no question. I'm not saying this is the only type of idol, but I want to give you the most biblical definition I can give you of what an idol is, okay? And that's going to help you bridge the gap from the golden statue then to now, okay? So let me give you the most biblical definition. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show you three passages, but literally I could show you dozens and dozens and dozens. This is far and away, far and away, the, the Bible's most common description of what an idol is. An idol is anything you fear more than you fear God. That's an idol. An idol is anything you fear more than you fear God. Okay, so now if you, if, you, know, if you see a bear and you're scared of him, that's not, that's, I'm not, that's not idolatry, okay? I'm touching that a little bit. An idol is anything you fear. It's not just that you have feelings of fear about a bear or a shark or something like that. It's an idol is something in your life that you fear more than you fear God, which means you're, if you fear this thing more than you fear God, you're going to obey this and give your allegiance here rather than to God. And there are, there are scads and scads and scads and scads of passages throughout Scripture that talk about this. I'll just, I'll just take you to three. 2 Kings chapter 17. The writer of 2 Kings is summarizing he is summarizing, very quick synopsis of a couple, in a couple verses, he is summarizing the covenant that God made with Moses and the Israelites back at Mount Sinai. And this is how he describes the covenant. The Lord made, that's Yahweh there, Yahweh made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, you shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. Okay, now, we all know that, you know, don't have any idols before you. That's the, the first commandment and the ten commandments. That's the most, you know, it's, it's like, that's the big one, right? Or at least one of the really big ones is don't have any other gods before you. You know, most Christians, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that. So here we have this synopsis of, of don't bow down to other idols. But I want you to notice here that in this command about idolatry, he does not say don't love other idols more than you love God. Okay, and that's the one that most of us Christians commonly think of. When we think of an idol, we think of something that you love more than you love God. And certainly, that would be an idol too. That is a kind of idol. But in the Bible, the Bible actually, uh, rare, when, it, when the Bible talks about idols, 90% of the time, probably, probably more, might be closer to 98 or 99, but 90% of the time in the Bible, and again, I can show you scads, I'm going to show you a couple more passages yet. When the Bible talks about idols, the kind of idol it talks about is not the kind of loving something more than you love God, even though that too is an idol, and that's important, we shouldn't do that. But it's, when it talks about an idol, it's something you fear more than you fear God. It's something you fear 
more than you fear God. Why is that? It's because God is a king. He wants our allegiance. God is a king. He wants our allegiance. The moment you stand in awe or terror or fear of something more than you fear God, you're going to obey that person or that thing, and your allegiance will no longer be to God. 1 Chronicles 16.25, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Anything you fear more than God just became your God. Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 15, and again, there's many passages we could look at. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. We are to fear God and obey God only. Now this is really important. The, the, it, and I want to just bring this in to you know, what the Bible even says about the last days. And of course we know that every day we live, we're one day closer to Jesus coming back. And we believe he's coming, it's, it's getting close. Okay? The Bible is very clear in, in, in prophecy after prophecy, and you have to understand this. Satan's end-time strategy for the world and for the church is not to get you to love the Antichrist more than you love Jesus. That's not his strategy. Satan's strategy is to get you to fear the Antichrist more than you fear Jesus. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing you have to know. Jesus is wonderful. The more you get to know Jesus, his character, his love, uh, everything about him. I, I spent time with him again this morning, and every time I spend time with him, the, the more I'm in his presence, the more I love him. I just, this morning again, I just, I was spending time with him, I was listening to some worship music, I was meditating on scripture, and I just, I love to be with Jesus. He is wonderful. He really is. Okay? Satan is not like that. Satan is evil. The more time you spend with Satan, he is evil and wicked. You don't fall in love with Satan. The more time you spend in Jesus' presence, you will fall in love with him. You will not fall in love with Satan. And this is why Satan, his initial temptation is, of, is often seduction. He tries to get you in by making something look good. But the longer you follow him, the more he has to default to fear and intimidation. And that's why you always see in sinful societies, the more they leave God. At first, when they leave God, it looks nice to everyone who isn't a believer and isn't walking with Jesus. But at first, it looks nice to everyone. But the more they walk down this path, the more it becomes about control and fear and manipulation and laws and government and all that sort of stuff. It's always how it happens. Because Satan always moves. Ultimately, his play is power, not love. And that's why always in the Bible, our warning on idolatry is... Fear God more. Do not fear anything more than God. This is why Jesus, in his discipleship of the disciples, okay, we're big on, we want to become a discipling church here at Southland, and this is part of Jesus' core discipleship material. I want you to notice what he teaches the disciples here. This is not to unbelievers. This is not to fringe people. This is to his disciples. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, speaking of God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a core 
component of discipleship. This isn't Jesus speaking, again, to fringe people. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You want to become a disciple maker, and you want to become a disciple yourself, one key component, yes, the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. We can never lose sight of that. That is the most important commandment. But a key component that goes along with that is Jesus said, the thing that's going to keep you going when times are tough, there are times when it's going to be dark. There are times when the opposition is going to be fierce. There's times when the slander and the hate and the prayers won't seem to get answered and disease and whatever else will afflict you. Things will afflict you. And in those times of weakness, there will be times when it won't be enough just to love God to get you through. You're going to have to also fear him. And Jesus says there are times when, in order to persevere and get through to the other side, the thing that keeps you going is, I, I, I actually fear God more than I fear this. And that's what keeps you going. It isn't enough just to love God. It, I mean, yes, that's a hugely important thing, but it isn't enough just to do that. I mean, I've known people, I've known all kinds of people that loved God. They worship, hands in the air, they love God while things were good. As long as things were good at work, as long as all their prayers were getting answered just the way they wanted them to, as long as the family was together, as long as the cabin was there, as long as this, 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 and that, and the other thing, and life was easy, as long as life was easy, they loved God. And then hardships hit, they got bitter, and they left. Why? They didn't fear God. Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, what is the fear of God? When I talk about the fear of the Lord, I'm not talking about being afraid of God like an abusive parent. Some of you, you had a horrible upbringing and that's very sad and you had an abusive dad or, or whatever. When I talk about the fear of God, you kind of make it as what you felt as a kid when your abusive dad would come home in the evening or drunk or whatever. And that's not what the fear of the Lord is. God is not an abusive parent. He is a loving, he's a loving father and he loves you. And he doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't act like an abusive parent. He doesn't abuse people, okay? That's not the kind of fear. Let me, I just want to break it down for you very quickly. This is really important. What I'm talking about when I talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord and when the Bible is talking about the fear of the Lord. There's three primary things. And there's probably other things we could add to this. this is, I don't think this is the complete biblical definition. But I think this is three important uh, components of what the fear of the Lord is, okay? So let's look at these three things. I'm just going to put them all up there at the same time. Uh, number one, what is the fear of the Lord? Being convinced in your heart that God is far bigger and stronger than whatever or whoever it is that is against you. Number two, the fear of God is being convinced in your heart that God is absolutely sovereign and in control at all times. And number three, the fear of God means you fear God's judgment more than you f fear people's threats, opinions, persecution, and hatred, okay? Now, I want you to notice here, all of these things, the fear of God is about the heart. It's not about the mind, okay? You, you don't fear God in your mind. You don't just say in your mind, yeah, God is bigger than all my problems. Yes, the day of judgment is coming, and then you live however you want. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is something that it, it goes into the core. It, you feel it. You have a reverence. You have an experience of God where you know him, you've seen him, you've been with him, and you have an experience of him being holy and awesome. And at the same time that you love him and he's wonderful, he's also fearful and untamed and dangerous. He's powerful. And you have this experience of him and it saturates everything in your life. It's just right into the core of your heart. That's the fear of God. It's a hard thing. It's not just something in your mind. Oh yeah, the fear of God is this. Chris told me these three answers so I have the fear of the Lord. No, no. It's something that changes the way you live. 
so that you obey. The sign of the fear of God is always obedience. If you do not obey God, you don't have the fear of the Lord. You might have a bunch of stuff up here, but you don't. The sign of the fear of the Lord is you obey him. The sign that I have a proper respect for my, you know, my stovetop in my kitchen is that I never once in 10 years of my house have I ever put my hand on the element when it's hot. That's the sign that I have a proper respect for the elements on the top of my stove. That's the same thing in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is, you, it's exhibited by your obedience. God tells you to do something, you do it. God says this is right and that's wrong, you do it. That's the fear of the Lord. You have a proper respect. And, and when it comes to problems and, and persecution or hard times or bad circumstances, it's sort of like this. Imagine you're on, the, uh, on, on a schoolyard and there's a bully there and he's, and he's going to bully you. And this, let's imagine this bully is two or three or four or five times bigger than you. He's way bigger than you, way more powerful than you. You don't have a chance of standing up to him. And he's got a stick and he's beating you and he's screaming you in, in, in your face and he's all this sort of stuff. And of course, the bully represents, you know, whatever hard circumstances can come into your life. It could be some situation with your marriage. It could be a situation with your, with your business. You're going to lose your business, or you're going to lose your job, or you're going to lose, or, you, you know, a uh, cancer diagnosis at a hospital, or something like that. It's something big. It's way bigger than you. It's way more powerful than you. That's this bully, and it's in your face constantly. It's just a stream of abuse on you and attacking you and trying to take away your hope. That's the bully, okay? If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you're going to eventually cave in. You're going to despair because the bully really is too big for you. Someone with the fear of the Lord, though, is someone who, because they've walked with God and they've experienced God, they know that God, they are able, even as the bully is attacking them, they're able to look past the bully at all times, and they, because they know God in their hearts, they're able to look past the bully at all times, and they can see God standing behind the bully, and he's a thousand times bigger than the bully. That's what the fear of God is. So the bully, it's not, you know, the fear of God is not making your problems small when they're big. It's not about, you know, it's not about deception. It's not about trickery. I just changed the way I think so that what used to be a big problem is actually a small problem. That's not, what, that's not what the fear of God is about. The fear of God, you look at the bully, he's still 10 times bigger than you. But I don't just look at the bully. I know God. I look past the bully. He's far bigger than the bully. And I can see, I can feel it in my heart because I walk with him that he can just flick his finger and this bully is dead. That's the fear of the Lord. He's far bigger than what is against me. And so my perspective of the, of the bully changes. Now I can't be intimidated by the bully. And I look up to God and he says, I'm going to let you deal with this for a little longer yet. And the fear of the Lord, you put your head down and you continue to endure. But no longer are you intimidated by the bully because you can see that there's someone bigger than the bully right there and he's sovereign, he's in control. And then there's one more thing. When you have the fear of the Lord, it's not just seeing that it, he's bigger than this problem, this situation, these people or whatever it is that's coming against you. However big they may seem. But it's not just that. There's one other key component in the fear of the Lord, and that is that always in the back of your mind, as you live, subconsciously, it's in your heart, you feel it. And Paul talks about this so much in the New Testament. You carry around with you this truth, this remembrance, that someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will have to give an account to God. And the fear of the Lord says, you, are, you, you know that day is coming. And it is coming for all of us, whether we think of it or not. But in, when you have the fear of the Lord, you remember it and you think about it. 
And when people come against you and circumstances come against you and there's pressure to cave in, to give up, to compromise, to disobey, to give up the faith, when those things come against you, when you have the fear of the Lord, you remember, oh yeah, the worst thing that can happen to me here on earth is not nearly as bad as what the worst thing is that could happen to me on Judgment Day if I don't follow him. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? And I'll put it up there again one more time. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I, you, know, you know, you can lose your job here. That's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as what could happen. I could lose my business here if I stand for right. Yeah, that is bad, but it's not nearly as bad as what could happen. See, we're all going to stand in judgment someday, and the only thing that's going to matter on that day is, did you do what pleased him? That's the fear of God. He's bigger, he's more powerful, and the only thing that matters is what's he going to think of you on Judgment Day, and that takes precedence over anything that happens in this life. So an idol, an idol is anything that can get your perspective off of what's coming in Judgment Day and can get it on the present so that you compromise the future and Judgment Day and what God thinks of you for the now. That's an idol. That's an idol. You fear that idol, that thing, that circumstance, that person, that whatever, that losing that job, that losing that kid. You fear whatever it is that you fear so much that you are willing to compromise obedience to God and following God and keeping faith in Him. And that, that is an idol, okay? And this is totally what the whole story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is all about. Who is more to be feared, Nebuchadnezzar or God? That's what this story is about. See, the people... The people who bowed down to the golden statue here, they didn't bow down to the statue because they fell in love with it. Nobody got up one morning and just said, oh, that golden statue is so lovely. That golden statue, oh, what a sense of humor. I love how that golden statue answers my prayers and lovingly watches over me and cares for my children. Nobody. You know, when you think about the past, I want you to remember this. People in ancient times weren't stupid. Just because they didn't drive cars and fly in planes doesn't mean they were stupid. They were human beings just like you and me. They were smart. They just didn't have the same technology. They didn't have the same knowledge of science as we have today. But they weren't stupid. They didn't just all get up one morning and go, oh, I love this golden statue. No, that's not why they were bowing down to it. They, were gonna, they bowed down to that statue because they were afraid. They just did what they were told. And this is why so many Christians, I think, get confused People ask them, you know, do you have any idols in your life? And they rack their brains looking for things they love more than they love God. And that is a good question to ask sometimes. Are there things in my life that I love more than I love God? But rarely do Christians ever stop to ask themselves the question, what do I fear more than I fear God? Because whatever you fear more than you fear God, you're not going to surrender to God in that area of your life. You're not going to obey God in that area of your life. You're probably not going to want to listen to God in that area of your life. And you're not going to be, he, he's not free and sovereign over that area of your life because you have an idol. You fear something more than you fear God. And I do want to say here again, I'm not saying you can't ever be scared of anything, okay? Um, I'm not saying you can't be scared of a bear or I'm not saying, you know, if you get a cancer diagnosis from the hospital, you have to jump up with glee and be happy about that. No. It, the point isn't that you can never feel afraid. The point is that there's nothing you fear so much that you'll disobey God. There's nothing you fear so much that you'll disobey God. Fear is something that every human being experiences at various times in their life. But there's nothing in your life controlling you by, by fear. You will obey God everywhere in your life. If that is true, then you have no idols. So back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 3. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And I want to stop here just for a moment. Because again, for many of us, this story is so familiar, you just kind of glaze through the details. Oh yeah, it's familiar. It's a familiar old song. It's a familiar old pair of pants. It's, we just kind of glaze over it and it feels good to read it. We don't actually stop to feel it. We don't stop to feel it. I want you to think. If you were there, think about the pressure. Think about the feeling of pressure that would have been bearing down on you in this situation. This is not bow down to an idol via email. This is not bow down to an idol via ballot box, secret ballot box. This is thousands of people, all the most, all your coworkers, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in government, that's why they're here. It's all your bosses, your coworkers. It's thousands of all these people from all over Babylon, all the civil servants, all the government people. Everybody on the tat, you know, the government payroll is all here, thousands and thousands of them for the superpower, in front of this statue, and when the music plays, they are all, every single one of them, going to bow down. Okay, now just even forgetting about being burned alive in a furnace, okay? Let's just take that out, because that obviously is scary to us, but I want you just to feel how much pressure, even aside from the death threat, how much pressure you would feel just based on the peer pressure of this event alone. I mean, if you don't bow down, you are going, going to be the only person out of thousands. You will be the only person. There's soldiers everywhere, all your coworkers, all the most important people, all the people you hope to get a raise from and, and all your you know, superiors, they're all there. They are all going to bow down in the thousands and they're going to be looking at you saying, what, are you too good for us? We're all willing to bow down. You won't bow down. You won't go with the flow. Think about the pressure, intense pressure. See, it's right about now, and this I know because I'm a human being, just like you guys. I can guarantee you 100%, if any of us was in this situation, there are some rationalizations that would immediately come to our minds. Isn't that true? Whenever we're under pressure, when we're not under pressure, like when we're all sitting here safe in a Southland church service, all of us think, well, obviously the right thing to do is to stand up and not bow down. Isn't that true? We all know that here today. It's all obvious. You know, it's obvious to us all today. We all know 100%... They should not bow down to the statue, but I can pretty much guarantee you that if you were standing there in that time, your brain would start coming up with rationalizations why it was suddenly okay. Isn't that true? That's what rationalizations are. We come up with reasons why this would be fine. I can think of one. I I thought of a couple this week as I was trying to put myself in that place. I was thinking, what kind of rationalizations were our human brains come up with? And, And one I thought of was, well, I won't actually worship the statue. I'll just bow down to it. Isn't that true? I've heard people give that excuse in a hundred different ways in modern times. I'll just, you know, it's not immoral to kneel down, is it, right? Your brain starts to think this way. I mean, I kneel down every day to pick stuff up off the floor and put my kids in bed. So if I just happen to kneel down at the same time everybody else kneels down to this statue, I won't be worshiping. Isn't that how our human brains think? Nothing wrong with kneeling down. I can just kneel down. I won't worship on the inside. Everything will be fine. That's a rationalization. 
See, because the point isn't the kneeling down. The point is, why are you kneeling down? You are kneeling down because you fear Nebuchadnezzar more than you feel Yahweh, and Yahweh says, and he's the one that counts, that's worship. That's idolatry. If you bow down because, it's not the, the act of kneeling that's the worship, it's the act of fearing Nebuchadnezzar more than the creator of the universe. That counts as worship to Nebuchadnezzar, and God says, that's idolatry. You know, there's so many other rationalizations. That's what a rationalization is. It's coming up with reasons why something that I know is totally wrong, but now I'm under pressure, I come up with reasons why it's okay in this, in this scenario. Another rationalization would be, well, if, if I don't bow down, they're going to stick me in the fir- fiery furnace, and then who will be left to tell all these people about Jesus? Isn't that true? You ever hear that one? We better not stand up for Christ here. We better not stand up for God's kingdom. We better not stand up for right Because if we stand up for right in this scenario, they'll get rid of us and nobody will be left here to be a witness for Jesus. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need to advance his kingdom through cowardice. God doesn't advance his kingdom through disobedience to his laws. That's not how he works. In fact, as we're going to see next week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego advanced his kingdom massively in Babylon by standing up. God's kingdom is not advanced by caving in to idolatry. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't get recorded in God's word for all of eternity. They didn't get commended in Hebrews chapter 11's hall of faith. They didn't get commended because they bowed down and rationalized and figured out why it would be okay. They got recorded because they did the obstinate, politically incorrect, hateful, bigoted thing to do. They stood up. They kept standing. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kept standing. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And so now he's going to give them a second chance. He's going to try and get them to compromise Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And now we're going to get, finally, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see their faith. This is what true faith. Remember, this story was written for our instruction. And nothing that is happening today is something that wasn't happening back then. And nothing that happened back then isn't something that's at work in our society and world today. So this is for us. This is what true faith and godliness under fire look like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But now look at this. But if not, even if he doesn't save us, 
even if he doesn't deliver us, even if he doesn't do a miracle, but even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden, golden image that you have set up. That's faith. That is real faith. And it's not just the faith of three, it's not just, God's goal isn't just to have three heroes who had faith like this, and then everybody else has normal faith. The reason it's in the Bible is for our instruction. This is the kind of faith God wants in all of us. So the question is, and I think this is the most important question when we look at this story, how do we get that kind of faith? How do we get that kind of faith? How do you go from, uh, if this is what God wants from all of his regular followers, and his Holy Spirit is in us, empowering us to do that, how do we get from where we are to being that kind of people that in a fiery furnace trial situation that we don't compromise, we don't disobey, we don't, you know, we continue to be submitted to God, we continue to be surrendered to him, we continue to do whatever he wants. How do we get there? Well, I think there's two things. It's actually not complicated. They're kind of obvious. They're things we talk about a lot here at Southland. The, the first one especially, the second one, most of us have probably never thought of when we think of this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, but I'll start with the first one is Relationship. If you don't actually have a relationship with God, if you don't actually have an experience of God in your life, you can't have faith. Faith isn't something that comes from knowing about God. It's something that comes, I mean, it's not something that comes from Sunday school. I know, you know, we sing, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. That's not, okay, that's a good thing to teach our kids, but if that's all you have, that's not faith. When the bully comes and hits you, if you haven't experienced God to be bigger than the bully, you're going you're gonna to fear the bully and obey the bully, and that bully will become your idol. It's only if you actually walk with God and experience Him. You don't get that from just hearing other people talk about Him. That, that is an encouragement to drive us deeper, but you don't get faith from hearing other people talk about God. You don't get you know, faith from just being a nice Christian and going to church all the time. You get faith by actually being in his presence and you get struck with awe at who he is. I mean, again, it's, it's, like, the, it's like the Grand Canyon. My wife and I were just there uh, recently and, you know, all my life I've known the Grand Canyon was an amazing place. I've, heard, I've known people who went there and I've heard them tell their stories and I go, wow, it sounds beautiful. I've seen the pictures. You see the pictures? So all my life in my head, I've known that the Grand Canyon is spectacular, wonderful, amazing, beautiful. I have always known that in my head. But it wasn't until I actually stood on the rim of that Colossus looking 5,000 feet down and seven miles across with small mountains in the middle and I'm looking down at them. It's not until I stood on the edge of that thing. It's not until I hiked to the bottom and felt the force of 5,000 foot walls on either side of me, almost a mile high, in some cases more. It's not till that point when I stood there and the awe and dread of the place came on me. It's like, wow. Wow, this thing, this is a powerful place. This is a place you have to be careful. This is a spectacular place. And now it's in my heart because I've experienced it. I've been here. It's the same thing with God. You don't get the fear of the Lord from hearing people talk about him. You don't get the fear of the Lord until you go into his presence and you experience him. And that changes you. And suddenly your perspective is different. The bully is still big, but your God is bigger. You can continue to obey and persevere in that. Well, I want to go to a second thing now, too. And there's a second thing here that is really, really important. And again, most people, I think, when they read the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, they totally miss this. 
See, we tend to think, when we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, it's basically the only thing we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We just sort of have this, you know, idea. Again, we don't consciously think this, but we just have this sort of idea about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like they were just kind of going through life, and life was good, and life was easy, and they loved God and worshipped God, and then one day, whammo, bow to the statue or die, and they stood, and they did it. That is totally not how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came to a place where they stood against the fiery furnace. Standing up in faith to the fiery furnace isn't something that just happened to happen with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's something that they had practiced and that had been developed in their life through much practice. See, this was not the first time Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had stood for right. This was not the first time that they had obeyed when somebody wanted them to disobey. And we know of at least two other situations in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a short one, so I can pretty much guarantee you there were others in their lives that didn't get recorded. But we know of at least two other occasions just in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up, did right, stood for truth, had to have faith, had to exercise obedience under pressure. And it was, the fiery furnace was simply the culmination of lives that had been lived in a certain way. So if we go back to Daniel 1 for a few minutes. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, I, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this probably next week, but their uh, real names actually in heaven, we're not going to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'll tell you more about that next, next week because th- th- those three names actually don't mean something good. We will never call them that in heaven. And that isn't actually what their real names were. They were Jewish men. Those were just their Babylonian names. They were Jewish men and their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay? So anyway, if you read Daniel 1, you're going to read about Daniel and Hananiah and, and Mishael and Azariah. And, uh, and they are captured from Jerusalem. So these are three Jewish boys. They're probably teenagers. They're very young. And they're, the Babylonians come and they take the Jews into exile. And, they, uh, and they, you know, they destroy the city of Jerusalem. And they take Daniel and they take his three friends and they put them in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're going to give them three years of training. Three years of training to basically turn them into Babylonian wise men, and then they're going to join the king's advisors and counselors and, and wise men and magi, all this sort of stuff, okay? So that's what they're on the training program. Now, the only problem is in this training program, part of the training program is they have to eat the king's food, okay? Now, this is a problem because the Babylonians were a very idolatrous society, a lot of the food they were eating was offered first to idols, had different things done over it. They also ate some of the good stuff, pork and bacon. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but remember, for the Jews in the Old Testament, there were certain strict food laws. Now, those food laws don't apply to Christian, you know, us Gentiles today in New Testament times. But in the Old Testament, the Jews had some laws, and there were good reasons for that. We've talked about that in other messages. But the Jews were, were not allowed to eat these sorts of things. Okay, so Daniel 1, here's these four teenage boys, and you guys are going to have to eat this food. Okay, now what are they going to do? What would you do? I can imagine the conversation that many Christians today would have. I can, I can, just, I can just hear it. I can hear the conversation that many of us would have in this situation. We sit down, we talk together. Well, you know what? The food laws aren't the real important ones, right? Like, like, why would we stand up on these little ones? We could lose it all. We should be, you know, now if they tell us to bow down to an idol, let's draw the line in the sand there. If they tell us to do something real bad, but these are just the small laws, right? Let's not fight on the small laws. Let's wait for the big ones. And then when it gets to the big ones, that's when we're going to make a stand. 
Is that what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did? No. Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved, and you don't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this verse, but you'll see them just a little later. They are definitely a part of this whole passage and story. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is actually what God wants from all of us. God does not want obedience and allegiance from us in some things. God does not just want obedience and allegiance from us in the big things. He wants obedience and allegiance from us in all things. And here's the point. If you are not faithful in the little things, you will never be faithful in the big things. If you don't have courage to obey God in the little things when it's easy, you'll never have courage to obey him in the big things. If you're Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and Daniel in this story, if you don't have the courage to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar on the food laws, you better believe you won't have the courage to stand up to him on the golden statue. If you're not faithful in the little things, you'll never be faithful in the big things. And see, the thing is, God knew the big test that was coming. He knew the big test that was coming in their life. These are tests getting them ready. He's building their faith. He's building their strength. Will you have integrity in this one? Will you fear more me more than these people in this little trial? Because I'm getting you ready because someday you're going to have a real big one. And when that day comes, your faith already has to have been tested. So Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were faithful in little things first, long before they were faithful at the fiery furnace. They were faithful in little things. If we read the rest of this Daniel 1 passage, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were, uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So already, long, like right uh, from a very young age, these guys had established a pattern of obeying God in all things, having their integrity, and they experienced his deliverance. And guess what happens when you experience them? It's just like when you experience the Grand Canyon. You go there, you go, wow, I want to come back. It changes the way you feel about that place. It changes the way you think about that place. It changes the way you respect that place. It's the same thing. You obey God in the little thing, and you experience his deliverance, and you experience how big he is, and you, you, experience, you just experience, flat experience him, and now suddenly you have a different knowledge of him. And you begin to walk in the fear of the Lord because you fear him because you've met him. And if you go to Daniel, uh, just a couple chapters later, it's Daniel 2. Yeah, it's Daniel 2, next chapter. If you go to Daniel 2, they, Hananiah, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I always forget the real names. I'll have to get that down for next week. But anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise men in the land. And Daniel comes to his three friends, and they get down into prayer to see God deliver them. And again, God delivers them. But each one of these things is a test that's getting them ready for the big ones. And always they're learning to trust God and to experience him. And, and that is just such an important thing. The point is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's big stand at the fiery furnace was simply the culmination of a lifetime full of a series of practices and tests. You say, how does this apply to us today? Oh, this is so applicable to us today. This is so unbelievably applicable to us today on a number of different fronts. 
Number one, the Bible rep- repeatedly says that in the last days, things are going to get worse, not better. The Bible repeatedly says that in the last days, the church is going to face humongous trials and hatred and persecution and slander and all these things. The Bible says it's going to happen, and Jesus isn't going to be wrong about anything. But you know, even putting that aside, even putting aside the fact that things are going to get a lot worse for the Christian church in this world, that it's going to get a lot hotter, it's going to get a lot more painful, it's going to get a lot more dark, but even just putting that aside, because that's going to happen, just by virtue of being human beings here today, every one of us, by virtue of being human being, has trials in our future. That's just what happens in this sinful, painful world. That's why heaven's so good. No more tears. But until we get to heaven, there's going to be tears. And so every one of us here today, it's not a question of, you know, am I going to have a fiery furnace trial at some point in my life? That's not the question. The question isn't, are you going to have a fiery furnace trial at some point in your life in the future? That's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do when your fiery trial furnace comes? That's the question. All of us are going to have, to varying degrees, some will have more, some will have more severe, some will have less severe, but all of us have fiery furnace trials in our future. The question is not if, the question is when. So then the question is, what kind of faith do you have? Is your faith of the metal, of the substance, of the material, that when your fiery furnace trial comes, that you'll stand? Is that, that's the question. You say, why? I, I don't know, right? Who knows? How do I know if I have the faith? Well, the beauty of this story is, you start preparing for that day today. When, this, when the fiery furnace trial hits in your life, when the storm hits in your life, it's too late. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't prepare for the fiery furnace the day before. God didn't put it on their calendar, hey, next month, what, they're going to do this crazy thing with a statue and threaten to throw you in a furnace. Whoa, we better get ready. That's not how fiery furnace trials come. They come, wham, and they nail you. That's how they happen. It's always a surprise, or usually it is anyway. They just began to, but they had prepared all their lives for this because all their lives they were committed to something, integrity. I'm going to do what God wants, when he wants, and I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to do right. I'm going to do right in the little things. I'm going to do right in the big things. And by doing right and listening to God and putting him first and experiencing him and practicing obedience to him and all these little things, when the day came, they stood. Their faith had been tested already. Faith was practiced. And so we begin to prepare for the storm today. And so I have a, just a challenge for you this week. A few questions for you to take. We begin to prepare for our storm days today. So just some questions to ask the Lord this week and to spend time with the Holy Spirit about. One question is, Lord, where am I compromising? Just ask Him. Any compromise in your life today in the small things is going to lead to compromise later on in big things. So you can deal with your compromise just right now today. You can deal with it this week. Lord, where am I compromising? See what he says. Lord, what am I afraid of that is causing me to bow down rather than to stand up? Anything you're bowing down to out of fear today, you're not going to stand up to that thing when things get tough. You're not going to stand up to bigger things when you're bowing to smaller things. This week, ask God, Lord, where do you want me to step out in faith? Maybe you've just never experienced God. You've never actually just gone to the Grand Canyon. You need to actually just step to the edge of the rim with God this week and say, where do you want me to step out? Where do you want me to step out in faith? 
I'm tired of just living for myself. I need to start living for your kingdom. If you don't live, can't live for the kingdom now, you're not going to live for it when the fiery furnace comes. I'm going to step out in faith today. Lord, where in my life can I stand for right? Where in my life can I stand for right? And as you begin to listen for God's voice in these areas and to obey him, you'll begin to experience him and know him and your faith will be tested and God will make sure if, you're, if you are willing to live in integrity before him and if you are willing to fear him more than you fear anyone else or anything else, he will make sure that you are ready for your fiery furnace trial. And he will be with you in that trial. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll look at that next week. But he went into the fire with them, didn't he? We have to do our part in advance. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to be a people of real faith. Not crazy faith, not weird faith, not bizarre faith, not head faith, real faith. Faith that obeys, faith that puts you first, faith that fears you above all others. We want to be a church that stands, a group of people that stand as a beacon of light, as a lighthouse, as a city on a hill, Lord Jesus, that as times get darker and darker, there will be at least one courageous church. There will be one place where people can look to for the truth, where people can look to for integrity, where people can look for, to for courage under fire. Jesus, we want to be that people for you. We want to please you. Speak to us this week. In your name we pray. Amen.